Hello, and welcome to the Dark Ages Podcast, episode 39, Young Justinian. In mountainous Illyria, in a spot that Peter Heather describes as miles from bloody anywhere, was a small village called Teresium. It was on the road between Nysus and Skupi, which is today modern Nish and Skopje, and so it had seen its fair share of armies passing through, both friendly and not. In the face of one of those unfriendly armies, a young man fled to the capital. He had the good fortune of finding a place in the newly formed unit of the Imperial Bodyguards, and had the further good fortune of being competent and ambitious. Rising to the commander of the guards, he married, acquired wealth along with his position and prestige, and sent for the family he had left behind to come and join him and benefit from his success. One of those relatives, the son of his sister, stood out as an equally driven and intelligent young man, and the commander made sure that he got the best education money could buy, and when that was done, a plum job in the commander's unit. When the Emperor Anastasius died in 518, fate, along with a well-placed bribe, saw the imperial diadem pass to the commander of the guards, who became Justin I. His well-placed nephew, at birth named Flavius Petrus Sabatius, took a new name in honor of his esteemed patron, Justinianus. A rumor floated around Constantinople that Justin was in fact illiterate and had been a swineherd before he arrived in the city, so it wasn't surprising that he kept the well-read and energetic Justinian close to him throughout his years at the top. Justinian's first promotion was to Comes Excubitoriae, the command position that had belonged to his uncle. Whether the rumors about Justin's background were true or not, it was certainly the case that Justin's marriage had produced no children, so it was equally unsurprising when Justinian was promoted again, first to Caesar in 525, then to co-emperor in 527, just five months before Justin died in September of that same year. Justinian would rule the Roman Empire for 38 years, and was behind so many projects and achievements that it seemed like a lot longer than that. His was the third longest of any imperatorship, behind only Augustus and Theodosius II, and for impact, he's easily in the top five, maybe even the top three. I'm curious to see whether any of you will call me on the technical quibble that lives in all those statements. At the end of the last episode, I described Justinian as a bowling ball, ready to destroy the carefully laid table of the Vandal Kingdom. In retrospect, the metaphor doesn't really work for the Vandals, but man does it ever work for Justinian. There are a zillion places you can go to learn about the incidents and outcomes of Justinian's reign. The obvious place to start, obviously, is the oft-mentioned History of Byzantium podcast by Robert Pearson, who devotes 16 episodes to the man and his times. I am not going to go into nearly that much detail on him, since I've said over and over again that I'm not going to spend that much time on the East, but I can't not talk about him. I've already given the outline of his rise to power in Justin's court. The rest of this episode is going to be about two things. A couple key events in Justinian's first five years in power, and second, introducing the people who surrounded Justinian and who will be part of our story for the foreseeable future. Justinian's first language was Latin, and in fact he apparently never shook the accent, 
though he spent most of his adult life working and speaking in Greek. The Illyrian countryside where he was born had been most often within the sphere of Rome, rather than Constantinople, and nostalgia for the old days of the United Empire seems to have had at least some effect on Justinian's worldview. If I have space at the end of this episode, we will try to explore the tricky question of the Eastern Empire's attitude toward its former territories in the West. The word that comes up most often in modern work about Justinian seems to be energetic. The emperor never sleeps was a common saying during his reign, and Justinian could be found wandering around the palace or working late into the night often. The list of his projects could fill up the rest of this episode, and indeed some of them will fill up with the next few. The great church of Hagia Sophia in Constantinople is without question the centerpiece and most enduring monument to Justinian, but he funded dozens of churches all around the empire, updated and improved the capital's harbors, supervised the codification of Roman law, and began the construction of a new city named after himself on the site of his birth. No one, even his most ardent critic, could have accused him of being lazy. He was also apparently approachable and friendly, though Procopius accuses him of being deceitful in the extreme and very petty, which to me just proves he was a politician. Probably most importantly, he was a sharp judge of talent and surrounded himself with the most competent men available to execute his projects. Competent, not necessarily ethical or diplomatic, as we will see. When he came to the throne, Justinian was full of ideas, but first on the agenda, before he could make any headway on any of those, he needed peace with Persia. I have not talked about Persia in a long while, and I am only going to do so now enough to bring us up to date. War with Persia had been a major distraction for Constantinople, with conflicts over the control of border states like Armenia and Iberia one of the major issues. As well as Roman forts in parts of Mesopotamia, the Persians would rather there weren't any Roman forts. Tensions in the region had been building through most of Justin's time in power, and war had broken out into the open in the last year of the old soldier's reign. At the beginning of Justinian's reign, the Persians were in the driver's seat in the conflict, but a couple of key victories shifted the momentum to the Roman side. One of those victories, at Dara, in 530, was thanks to the efforts of a young general named Belisarius, one of those men whose talent Justinian recognized. The next year, Belisarius was defeated by the Persians at Callinicum, putting off a resolution to the conflict for another year. Belisarius was removed from his post and summoned back to Constantinople to face an inquiry. With him, through all of this, was our buddy Procopius, serving as an advisor to the general. While it seems that Belisarius was about to be read the riot act, it's also likely that Justinian wanted him close for other projects, away from the Eastern Theater, and was playing his cards close. In the end, peace with Persia came about thanks to the death of the Persian king of kings, Kavad I, and the succession of his son Khusro I. Khusro was familiar to Justinian. Once upon a time, Kavad had proposed that Justin adopt Khusro to secure his position against several rival claimants to the throne, which would have made him and Justinian brothers. The scheme never came to anything in the end, but it meant that there were personal connections between the two rulers. Khusro accepted a massive payment of 11,000 pounds of gold from Justinian to end the war and sign what was known, optimistically, as the Treaty of Eternal Peace between the two empires. Eternity apparently equals eight years in the end, is how it worked out, but it was enough to free up resources for Justinian's other projects. It wasn't a universally popular piece. Many grumbled that it looked an awful lot like the Romans paying tribute to the Persians, which would imply Persian superiority, not a concept the Roman mind was comfortable with. I know what you're thinking. 
11,000 pounds of gold is almost triple the largest payment ever made to Attila the Hun. Almost 900,000 gold pieces. Where exactly was all of this coming from? Justinian's eye for talent comes into the equation again here. He brought new men into the civil side of government as well as the military. Most famous among these were Trebonian and John the Cappadocian. Both were important in Justinian's great codification of Roman law, which we'll talk about another time, but at the time they were both more infamous for their role in the reform of the tax policies. Justinian needed money and these two were going to get it for him by a combination of ruthless economizing and equally ruthless tax collection. John was especially notorious in this, more than willing to use violence to extract every available denarius from his targets. Procopius in The Secret History blames Justinian for the cruelty and dishonesty of his subordinates on the principle of culture starts at the top. Both Trebonian and John would face popular outrage, which we'll talk about shortly, but their exactions were key to putting the empire on more stable fiscal footing than it had been. Before we get to that popular outrage, we need to talk also about Theodora. Theodora leads us into the dangerous waters of the secret history. It's hard to know what's true, what's malicious, and what's a joke. Theodora, like Justinian, was a climber and a troublemaker. She was the daughter of an animal trainer who provided animals for entertainment at the Hippodrome in between the chariot races. When she grew up, she had also entered the entertainment business as well, as a dancer, and, if we're to believe Procopius, as a prostitute. Really, that is not unlikely. The line between the performing arts and the, um, performing arts was pretty much invisible. Procopius ascribes all kinds of exploits to her, none of which are appropriate for a family show, and an unknowable portion of which are probably complete fabrications. What is certainly true is that she was not considered an appropriate match for young, not-quite-yet Emperor Justinian, but the young noble was hooked. He prevailed upon his uncle to change the law to allow him to marry Theodora, and the lady thus skipped over many rungs of the social ladder, between circus and palace, in a single leap. She was well known for her influence over Justinian, and was in no way circumspect about her opinions. She feuded with his advisors, and would take any opportunity available to undermine them when, they were, when it was presented to her. Once she was empress, Theodora and Justinian set about erasing her previous reputation. She became almost as much a face of the regime as her husband, appearing with him at state events as an equal, and insisting that she be treated with the same level of reverence. Outwardly, this shored up the dynasty's legitimacy, presenting the couple as God's chosen leaders of the one and only Christian empire but it bred resentment among the hereditary nobility, who were well aware of Theodora's and indeed Justinian's backgrounds. That resentment was especially dangerous because of the way Justin, and then Justinian, had come to the throne. Justin had not become emperor because Anastasius had no remaining relatives. He had just been the most adroit of the competitors on the spot at the time. There were still plenty of members of Anastasius's dynasty hanging around, in particular the late emperor's nephew, Hypatius. Meanwhile, the Deems, the Deems were the factional supporters of the various chariot racing teams, chafed under the exactions of the new civil administration and resented the uneven implementation of Justinian's legal reforms. The Deems were kind of a combination fan club and street gang, often led by young noblemen with too much time on their hands. Before he became emperor, Justinian had been a supporter of the faction called the Blues, but that support did not translate into preferential treatment once he came to power, and the Blues resented that. Their rivals, the Greens, had meanwhile not forgiven the emperor's earlier favoritism to their opponents, 
Elements within the palace seemed to have stoked these resentments. As the Persian War dragged on, tensions in the city rose. When it ended, under terms that could certainly be spun as a humiliation, the situation only worsened. At the races on January 13th, 532, things turned ugly. The Hippodrome abutted the palace, so Justinian could enter his box without going out on the street, and he was in attendance for that day's races. Regularly showing himself to the public was one of the ways the emperor demonstrated that he was in good health and in control, and gave the populace an opportunity to make their feelings about the regime known. Right from the start, the January crowd was hostile, shouting abuse at the emperor and empress. As the day progressed, their mood only deteriorated. Instead of the usual factional chants, the whole crowd began chanting in unison, Nika, Nika, which was the Greek word for victory, and which gave the Nika riots their name. The end of competition was quickly followed by violence. Stones and refuse were thrown at the emperor's box, and he and Theodora were forced to retreat inside the palace. The crowd streamed out of the Hippodrome and took control of the streets. Fires were set around the city, and the Imperial Guard was helpless in the face of such mass opposition. Fire was the nightmare scenario for all ancient city dwellers, and this one spread quickly. The great Hagia Sophia Church, the Baths of Zuxippus, and parts of the palace itself were all consumed by the flames, along with the colonnaded marketplace built by Constantine, and many private dwellings. Fire was applied as if by the hand of an enemy, as Procopius puts it. The rioters demanded the removal of John the Cappadocian and Trebonian. Justinian caved to the demand, and the two were removed from their posts. They, along with many others, barricaded themselves in the palace for safety. The specificity and clear targeting of the demand was the first sign that these riots were receiving direction from somewhere inside the bureaucracy, and suspicions inside the palace grew. Some of the rioters indicated that they would not accept anything less than Justinian's abdication in favor of Hypatius. Hypatius himself went to the emperor to personally assure him that he had nothing to do with the riots and had no interest in the throne. Justinian appears to have believed him, not that it did either of them any good. The atmosphere inside the palace became increasingly poisonous, and a siege mentality grew. Meanwhile, the city burned. Justinian and many of his advisors were prepared to abandon the city and presumably the throne in the face of such intractable opposition. Boats were prepared and were ready to take them away from the palace to safety. But Theodora refused to leave. She had come up from nothing to the greatest possible wealth and influence available and wasn't about to take a single step backward. According to Procopius, she shamed the cowardly men. For one who has been an emperor, it is intolerable to be a fugitive. May I never be separated from this purple, and may I die on the day that those I meet do not call me mistress. If you wish to save yourself, emperor, it is not difficult. We have money, here is the sea, there are the boats. However, consider if once you are saved, you will not come to gladly exchange that safety for death. For myself, royalty will make a fine burial shroud. The lady was not for turning. It was enough. The court began to debate among themselves how to bring the riots to an end. It was clear that appeasement was a fool's strategy. The mob would not be satisfied until Justinian was dethroned, probably dead. Some of the palace guards had fled, some had joined the rioters, but there were enough left that a military solution wasn't out of the question, and soon a plan was in place. It was a terrible plan, in the old Tolkien-esque sense of the word. It would hopefully not only bring an end to the violence, but remove the potential for future disturbances. And it just so happened that Justinian had just the men for the job. Belisarius was in town, having just been recalled from the Persian frontier, along with another general named Mundus. 
Mundus was by birth a Gepid, or maybe a Hun, possibly a Goth, or maybe all three. Sources are divided. And remember, identities in the Balkans were always fluid, as we've heard. What was important was that he had spent the last three years fighting for the Romans, first in the Balkans and then in the East, and had demonstrated his loyalty and competence in both theaters. The last part of the puzzle was a eunuch named Narses. Narses had already been around forever. He had been instrumental in Justin's accession and was well-versed in the arts of palace intrigue and subterfuge. He seems to have known everyone, along with every pressure point in the imperial apparatus. Narses was given a substantial quantity of gold and told to slip out of the palace and find the leader of the Blues. Would the gold, along with the old tie between him and Justinian, convince them to hang back from the violence for the next few days? Only time would tell. In the meantime, the mob had seized Hypatius and were going to crown him at the Hippodrome, whether he wanted them to or not. The large gathering and ceremony that that would entail presented the government with an opportunity. Justinian made himself scarce, allowing the crowd to believe that he had been cowed into accepting his own overthrow. On the day of Hypatius's coronation, the Hippodrome was full of people, mostly down on the floor of the track. During the ceremony, the Blues suddenly withdrew from the great stadium. Narses had done his work. Once they were clear, the generals made their move. Belisarius led a force of loyal guards out of the stands near the emperor's box. The crowd vastly outnumbered them, but they were mostly unarmed, entirely unarmored, and also taken completely by surprise. Hemmed in by the stands, they turned and fled the advancing soldiers, only to meet Mundus and his force coming in the other way from the main entrance gates. Belisarius and Mundus worked toward each other methodically, hacking and slashing indiscriminately. When they met in the middle of the Hippodrome's floor, Procopius tells us that they were surrounded by 30,000 dead. 30,000 dead out of a population of probably between five and 600,000. Imagine that in a modern city. My own local example, Milwaukee, is roughly similar in population, but while Milwaukee is spread out over about 95 square miles, the population inside the Theodosian walls occupied about five and a half square miles, or 14 square kilometers. The only modern city that approaches that level of density is Manila. Between the fire, the violence of the riot itself, and the vicious repression, no one was untouched by Nika. Popular protest, and indeed riot, had always been part of Constantinople's popular political culture, but the response to the Nika riots tore the heart out of the city. No popular unrest would trouble Justinian again. He would rebuild the city better than it had been before, but it all rested on the ashes of Nika. The nobles who had participated in Hypatius's coronation were identified, rounded up, and exiled. And poor Hypatius, though probably blameless, was executed as well. It was too dangerous to leave him alive as a symbol of resistance. The people who I've introduced in this episode, Belisarius, Mundus, Narses, John, and Trebonian, and Theodora, will all be frequent guests of this show for quite a while and it was the Nika riots that bound them together and made them the trusted core of Justinian's team. I am putting a specific kind of spin on the outcome of Nika, that it freed Justinian's hands to act as he wished, and in the long term that turned out to be true. But in the short term, coming as it did on the heels of a Persian peace that many saw as a shameful payment of tribute to an ancient enemy, the riot was a blow to the regime's prestige. An emperor who reigned over charred rubble and who paid his enemy to leave him alone was hardly an emperor at all. Justinian needed a project that would restore his legitimacy and restore the light of God's favor to the imperial image. 
Whether Justinian hit on the coming war in Vandal Africa, for that is where we are heading, dear listener, is a matter of historical debate. Peter Heather argues that the Vandal expedition presented itself as a solution to the problem, essentially on a whim of fortune, that Justinian had no designs on such a reconquest before the opportunity arose. Others have suggested that Justinian looked back at the United Empire with nostalgia and longing and was actively looking for chances to undo the humiliations of the last century. And what better way to restore his legitimacy and his eternal legacy than by restoring what had been lost? It's unknowable, of course, and that's why historians like to argue about it. It does give me the opportunity to explore a question that hasn't come up in a while. What did the fall of Rome really mean to those who lived through it? We've talked about it from the Western perspective. Certainly people were aware that the emperor had been disposed. They were aware that it came at the end of decades of instability and chaos. They had only to look out at their trampled fields and burned ships to know that they had gone down kicking and screaming. Sidonius Apollinaris even identified 476 as the year that it all came to the end. In the East, on the other hand, the attitude can seem oddly passive about the whole thing. During the years of crisis, there had been a handful of attempts to save the West, but other than the disastrous attempt to retake Africa in 468, most of these had consisted of declaring emperors and sending them to Italy, only for them to fail in the face of reality. Distractions from the Persians and from the steppes can explain some of this. The East had its own problem. But once it had managed to stabilize itself around Anastasius' time, there were no concerted efforts to retrieve Africa, Gaul, or Spain, let alone Italy, in the name of Rome. Part of it was cultural. Diocletian had divided the empire into east and west for the first time in 286. Constantine had founded his new Rome in 330. By 527, when Justinian came to power, the east and west had been de facto separate entities for generations. Latin was still a language of government, but most people in the East spoke Greek, and the East had always had a cultural feel to it that was different from the West, even before the administrative split. It was easy for a citizen of Constantinople to go through life perfectly content that he lived in the richest and most powerful empire in the known world. Crisis? What crisis? The people who occupied the top jobs certainly were aware of what had been lost. They were brought up on the early history of Rome, Livy and Suetonius and so on. But that didn't mean that they necessarily had skin in that game. Rome had founded a great empire, things had changed, and now that empire no longer contained Rome itself. But that wasn't the end of the world. The sainted Constantine, in his wisdom, had created a new Rome, right where and when it was needed. Most elites no longer had any kind of financial vested interest in the West anymore. There were refugees from Italy and Gaul around, but it had been 50 years now. Most would have married into Constantinopolitan society and assimilated. The pressure to restore what they had lost was fading. Diplomatically, the government in the East was mostly happy to keep up the fiction that the Western kingdoms still existed on sufferance, that they were all, in fact, viceroys for the emperor. The Germanic kings kept up their end of the charade because there was still prestige in the old titles the East could give out. Consul, Patricius, Magister Militum, and so on. Kings of the Franks, the Ostrogoths, and the Burgundians all accepted imperial titles with pride and did their best to stay on good terms with New Rome. So what was changing? I've already tipped my hand, Justinian's going to war in the West. Why now? It's tempting to put it all down to ego, and that may have played a part. Justinian was a man wholly comfortable with the idea of himself as God's hand-picked representative, and his self-regard seems to have had few limitations. But as we'll see, the Vandal War didn't start as a mission to restore what had been. I don't have an answer to this question yet. 
But with the ascension of Justin, Roman propaganda shifted toward a much harsher tone with regard to the Western kingdoms. It's in Justin's reign that the first reference appears in a chronicle to 476 as the fall of the West. Sidonius's earlier notation was in a letter, not an actual official history. The sense that something was wrong, that it had to be righted, comes more and more to the forefront. Part of it may also have been religious. While Anastasius had been emperor with his unorthodox monophysite views, the separation of the pope from the eastern patriarch had seemed bearable. In the orthodox mind, both the pope and the conventional Christians of the east suffered under heretical rulers. But once the ultra-orthodox Justin and the equally conventional Justinian were in place, the occasion schism was healed and the situation changed. Now the east was ruled under one true faith, while the pope groaned in subjection to an alien Aryan oppressor. And how much worse, then, was the fate of the inhabitants of Africa? The Aryan king of Italy, Theodoric, could at least make a case that he was a civilized man. Not so the Vandal savages. Hostility to the Western kings on an ideological basis was gaining ground in eastern corridors of power, and Justinian would give that hostility shape. Next time we will hear about the first of Justinian's Wars of Restoration, as Procopius accompanies Belisarius to tell us all about it firsthand. I was extremely sloppy last time and forgot to thank people for their support. I'm very, very sorry about that. My incompetence in this regard, coupled with the long break, means that I have a lot of these to catch up on, which is a nice problem to have. So thank you so much to Anne, James, Michael, Catherine, and Luke. Sorry about setting you on that path, Luke. And Catherine, just Catherine, whoa. Thank you so much. And as always, my eternal gratitude to beloved monthly supporters on Ko-fi, Paul, Scott, Jesse, Brendan, Alex, Dusty, and John. A special thanks also to Jennifer for stepping in and being my Theodora. If you feel like what I do deserves a reward, you can toss a couple of bucks in the digital tip jar at ko-fi.com. That's ko-fi.com slash darkagespod. You can also give high fives in the form of ratings and reviews, or ratings or reviews, depending on your podcast platform. I think I can see all of those reviews now, no matter where you leave them, so be assured that I do read them all, sometimes more than once, and I appreciate every single one of them. Until next time, have a good couple of weeks, and take care. Mm-hmm.